Our gospel reading for this Lord's Day is Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, just as your spirit opened the eyes of these disciples as our Lord Jesus spoke the scriptures to them, so open our eyes today by your Holy Spirit as we hear your word. Give us ears to hear, illumine our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How often have you failed to see something that is right in front of you? I've read that this is a particular struggle for men, and maybe you ladies can relate to the struggle that men have with this, I'll confess, I will go to the refrigerator, open the door and stare. And I know the ketchup or the butter is in there. I know we have it. We just bought it. And I'll ask my wife, where's the ketchup? And she says, it's in the refrigerator. Well, yes, I'm looking in the refrigerator and I don't see it. And she'll say it's in there. And I'll say, no, it's not. And then she comes over and points to the bottle. And without fail, it's right in front of me. Now, I've read in a few places, and you can check me on this. But it seems that God gave men and women different arrangements of cones in their eyes so that women can see more contrasts of color 
and women have better peripheral vision and men have better long distance vision, seeing more accurately things that are far away. But occasionally we miss things that are right in front of our eyes. Well, nearly all of us, men and women, have at some point looked for our glasses while they're on our head, or we look for our phone while it's in our hand. We have these moments where we're blind to the obvious, and these moments are very effective at humbling us. In our gospel reading today, we have the account of two disciples who walked a great distance with the risen Jesus without recognizing who it was that they were talking to. Last week, I briefly mentioned Mary, who saw the risen Lord in the garden near the tomb. She didn't recognize him. And as we stand back from these stories, we ask, how did none of these know that it was Jesus that they were talking to? He wasn't a stranger to them. They knew him. Well, some attempts to explain the blindness of these two disciples center around the time of day. Maybe they were walking with the setting sun in their eyes and they couldn't see too well. Or maybe Jesus's resurrected face and body was so completely different in appearance than before that they just couldn't tell it was him. Or maybe it was just that they knew Jesus had died and they were so overcome with grief that the last possible explanation for who the stranger was, was that he was Jesus. Or it could be some combination of all three reasons. But Luke doesn't leave us guessing. He says their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And then in verse 31, we read that their eyes were opened. So there's more going on here than a simple natural explanation about the sun in their eyes. Their sight is being supernaturally impeded and then opened and then freed. And as is usually the case in the scriptures, their physical condition is reflective of their spiritual condition. It's not just that their sight is clouded by worry and grief, but their minds and their hearts are clouded by misunderstanding. Jesus calls them foolish and slow of heart. They know the news that is circulating that Jesus has left behind an empty grave. They could have believed that. They could have accepted the good news. But rather than hanging around Jerusalem in faith to wait and see if those things were true, these two disciples hit the road. They go away from the city. Now, as we saw last week, again, they're not the only ones who would have a hard time believing the first reports of the resurrection of Jesus. Everyone who is confronted with this news, even Jesus's closest friends, have a difficult time believing. And yet, that doesn't excuse the unbelief of anyone. During Jesus's ministry, he told everyone plainly, The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Mark said he spoke this word openly. He wasn't hiding this. And not only that, but he also spoke in symbol. He gave them the sign of Jonah. He also said, if you tear this temple down, I will rebuild it in three days. Speaking of himself. Any way you cut it, if you like plain speech, if you like symbol, he told them what was going to happen. And the fact that it seems that no one caught on just shows you how hard it is for all of us to see a truth that is right in front of us. There's no evidence that these people were exceptionally dull. If you or I were put in the same position, we could very well be just as thick-headed when coming to grips with this incredible, extraordinary truth that Jesus had come out of the grave. This reality of the dullness of our hearts cuts in two ways for us. First of all, 
we must exercise a great deal of patience with the guy who can't see the butter right in front of him, metaphorically speaking. Whether the butter that's right in front of him is God's sovereignty, or the importance of Christian education, or the centrality of the church, or the usefulness of the Psalms, or whatever you think you have figured out that your neighbor doesn't have figured out, his eyes have to be open the way yours were open. And so we have to be patient with our neighbor and our brother. But when we think of the effects of the fall, also, um, our minds run to Genesis 3, uh, the curse on work, the curse on childbearing. Maybe we go on to think on the frailty of our bodies or the presence of sin or the presence of death in the world and the effects of that. And, and in terms of the fall and the effects of the fall, that's, that's what we think of. But the Bible also says the effects of the fall have warped our minds. Sin has warped our capacity for understanding so that we very often can't see a truth that is right in front of us. Our minds have been corrupted in such a way that our ability to process even objective information accurately is suspect, and all of our conclusions are tainted by sin. In Ephesians 4, we read that the unredeemed man has a futile mind, a darkened understanding, is ignorant, and possesses a blindness of heart. In Colossians 1, Paul tells us that apart from Christ, we are alienated and enemies in our minds. And in 1 Corinthians, we read that the natural man does not receive the things revealed by the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. Romans 1 tells us that sin has severely affected our ability to reason and to discern right from wrong, and that we are subject to all manner of errors of thought. See, because of the effects of sin and the effects of the fall on the human mind, we are apt to believe falsehood. We abound in errors of mental processing. We are prone to self-deception, and we are subject to a weakened understanding. We are, we are apt to process the information around us in a self-interested way. We prejudicially close our minds to truths that make us uncomfortable, and we open our minds to lies that make us comfortable. We hold competing, contradictory ideas in our heads at the same time, unswayed by logic, blind to our inconsistencies. This is not to say that our ability to reason has been utterly destroyed by the fall. The scriptures teach that there are truths that we can and do know, and we observe uh, truth as, as we submit to the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God guides us into truth, yes, but apart from the Spirit, all of our faculties of understanding have been significantly spoiled in such a way that following our own understanding will only lead us to futility. Here, we see two disciples whose understanding is being restrained, such as their eyes, for a time, are not opened by the Spirit of God, and they can't even see Jesus who's standing right in front of them. When you were a kid, did you ever watch those old drive-in movies from the 50s where the monster or the creature or the alien was creeping up behind someone and you would yell at the TV, he's right behind you, turn around, he's right there. Well, you want to do the same thing when you read this story. He's right there. Look at him. It's Jesus. But until the spirit opens their eyes, they are blind. And unless our minds are submitted to the Holy Spirit, and unless we repent and clean out the filth and the stupidity and the nonsense and the rebellion, which obscures the truth, well, we might as well be just as blind as they are walking around in a cloud in a daze 
And we ought not be surprised when people who are not submitted to God's Holy Spirit are likewise subject to thick mental darkness, that they are easily scared, that they are quickly terrorized, that they are prone to such grievous error. These are the effects of sin on human understanding. Well, it's significant to note at what point their eyes are opened. They express their confusion about the whole purpose of Jesus, and so he reasons with them from the scriptures. He goes to the Bible, and beginning with Moses, that is, beginning with the Pentateuch, and going all the way through the prophets, he preaches a comprehensive, redemptive historical message about how everything in the whole canon of the Hebrew scriptures points to him. Jesus could just as well have spoken on his own authority, and he could have taught, as he often did throughout his ministry, on his own authority. But in this time and place, with these befuddled, grief-stricken, fearful disciples, he goes to the scriptures. Doesn't it strike you as significant that in order to minister to these people, Jesus goes to the Bible? Because what they need is the scriptures. They lack understanding they need the Bible. They fear. They need the Bible. They're grieving and confused. They need the Bible. When they can't see the Jesus right in front of them, Jesus takes them to the Jesus in the Bible and demonstrates what all the scriptures say to them about him. Do you ever get that question from a well-meaning Christian? What is God saying to you? Is God speaking to you? What did God tell you? Well, you know what God told me this week? He told me uh, Psalm 44 and 45 and 46 and 47 and 48. He told me Jeremiah 25 through 32, because that's what I'm reading for myself. He told me a chunk of Proverbs, and he told me all the scriptures I read with people this week. And he told me all uh, all the scripture that I read for this message, in, uh, including Luke chapter 24. That's what God said to me. God said to me what I read in his word this week. That's what God what God said. How is God speaking to you? Well, he speaks to me through the Bible. And when he speaks through me, it's not because I have some special revelation. It's because I'm reading the Bible out loud and telling people what's in it. Because of the ease with which I know I can deceive myself, I don't trust my own head. I don't trust my own heart. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we don't, we don't follow our feelings. We follow principles. We follow the principles that are found in God's word. And that's not to say that the pursuit of truth is all mechanical and cold and has nothing to do with your affections. Not at all. It doesn't mean you leave your heart out of it. These disciples say, in fact, did not our heart burn within us? They were moved deeply, emotionally, down to their innermost being. Like the women and the apostles we read about last week, who went from the depths of despair to the peak of joy when they saw the risen Jesus. These two disciples now are moved, but what is it that moves them? It's not that they've sat around and come up with some really creative emotion-based pseudo-theology that gives them fuzzy feelings and tells them they're all right. They say, our heart burned within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. The objective truth of the scriptures is what stirred them. Do you want a really great supernatural spiritual experience? Read the Bible and ask God to open your eyes to understand what's in it. 
God speaks to these people here through Jesus teaching them the scriptures, and that's what makes them whole. But also notice it's not the Bible in a vacuum. It's Bible taught while they are walking and then when they sit down to eat. Over the last several weeks, my family has been doing a lot of walking together. It's about all there is left to do if you want to go somewhere that's not your living room. So we go to parks and trails and we walk. And there's something very therapeutic. There's something very refreshing about walking and talking together. When you walk and talk to someone, you're both facing the same direction. You're both going the same direction. And when you're walking together, there's no awkward pauses like there would be if you were sitting across the table because you're doing something. It's okay to stop talking for a little while and to absorb and to let thoughts hang in the air before you respond. It's a wonderful way to communicate. And at at different times over the years, I've grabbed my son or my daughter and I've said, "Uh, let's take a walk. Let's take a walk. We have something to talk about, something important. Let's take a walk. I commend that to you. If you need to talk to your spouse or talk to a child, try taking a walk with them. Here, Jesus joins these two disciples on a seven mile hike from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's about two and a half hours worth of walking. And while he walked, He taught, he illustrated, he gave application, he answered questions, he made connections between different parts of the Old Testament and his life. And then when they got to their destination, they ate. He took bread, blessed it, and broke it. That's the very same pattern he gave at the Last Supper. There's a sacramental dimension to what he does there. And this is ultimately when their eyes are open and they realize finally and fully who they've been with this whole time. See, he was with them even when they didn't know it was him. Even when they thought they were on their own with some stranger, but abandoned by this failed Messiah movement, they were upset and they were disoriented. He was there walking with them and teaching them the whole time. Of all the things that Jesus could have done during these 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, and and he did many things, but among all the things he could have done, he chose this one afternoon and evening, this one half a day, to come personally to these disciples and walk with them and minister to their grief and their doubt. Not only does this demonstrate the love of the Lord Jesus for us, but it also sets an example of how he expects us to take care of each other. Paul told the Galatians, he said, restore those who are caught up in trespasses and carry the weight of one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 10 tells us to provoke each other to good works. Philippians 2 commands us to look out for each other's interests. Paul writes these things because this is what Jesus wants. This is what Jesus expects. And here Jesus shows us how to do it. He shows us how important this is. He spends some of his precious time in his last few weeks before his ascension doing this thing. And so if you're a child of God who is growing in grace, if you're faithful to worship, If you're a student of the scriptures, you are equipped to help each other grow. You are equipped to carry another person's burdens with them. Not only are you equipped, but you're called to walk with them, to meet people on the road at the point of their doubt or at the point of their fear or their sinful disordered thoughts or motives or behaviors 
and to meet them there and to open the Bible and see what God's word says about what they're experiencing, to enter into their lives and to say to them, I want to walk with you a little ways. Can I, can I walk with you through this? To be physically, personally present and engaged with them, walking, eating, talking. Now, we're somewhat limited now, but these are challenges we can overcome in various ways. They're not excuses for not doing this. We have many opportunities to communicate. And we must practice this with each other and get good enough at it that we can eventually do it with people outside of our body. You see, we're living in really curious times right now, a really curious time in history where isolation and complete social independence is getting really old, really quick. People are dying for human interaction and human touch. There are many people in your circles of influence and in your neighborhoods who over the next few weeks are going to be emerging from a crisis just like these two disciples, and everything's going to be kind of fluid for them. Lots of questions, lots of doubts and fears, and some of them are going to be in a place where they're ready for their eyes to be open to the truth. So pray for those opportunities and take those opportunities when you can find them. Join Jesus in his work of building people up, of edifying with them with the scriptures. Your opportunity is coming, so be ready to walk and talk and to break bread and to open the scriptures and just try it. Join Jesus in this and just see if God doesn't open their eyes. Let's pray.